This is Dr. Becky Jaynes, lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Liverpool, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello, in this episode, we met up with Dr. Rebecca Jones, a lecturer in the School of Life Sciences. We chat about her work with students to prepare them for the future in regard to developing programming on quantitative analysis skills. We hope you enjoy. So Becky, we're really pleased to be speaking with you today. We're delighted to talk to you about the work that you've done with your students to prepare them for the future in regard to developing programming and quantitative analysis skills. But before we get started, please, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how have you arrived at your position that you're in today? Thanks, Matthew. So I'm Becky. I've kind of stayed at Liverpool most of my life, actually. I kind of moved up from the south to start a zoology degree at Liverpool, swiftly moved on to a PhD in behavioural ecology at the University of Liverpool as well. Was unfortunate enough to get a temporary one year contract to cover some teaching for some colleagues for a year. Um, I then left to go down to the University of Sussex as a teaching fellow again in life sciences. But then a permanent job came back up at Liverpool and I just, I love Liverpool so much. The colleagues in the School of Life Sciences are so friendly and collegial. The teaching environment is wonderful. So I jumped at the chance to move back to Liverpool. My partner's also a researcher in the University of Liverpool as well. So it's kind of a no brainer to make the move back. And I've been in Liverpool ever since. Wow, so you've really felt the pull of the city, not just the university then. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've loved it. I've kind of came up, originally wanted to apply for veterinary medicine, so I came up for an open day, fell in love, never even been further north than Birmingham until kind of before I came to uni, although I've moved around a lot with my dad being in the army. So kind of came up, really loved it, and yeah, hopefully stay here for a while. So where whereabouts are you originally from? Oh, well, I was born in Cyprus because my dad's in the army, so... We've moved around a lot, so Germany, Spain, Wales, and Brunei. So kind of been everywhere, but never never been further north than Birmingham in the UK. <laughs> well, now you're an honorary northerner. Yep, yep, definitely. Fantastic. And I noticed from your biography that you really enjoy the outdoors, and I guess being near to Wales is is great in terms of getting some of that walking do, done and um, enjoying the wildlife. Is that correct? Yeah. So we rescued a lurcher. January just before the pandemic so he needs a lot of exercise so getting out to North Wales quickly because I'm on the Wirral super quick to get out there on the M53 and get out and I'm I'm also learning to ring as well in my part-time so trying to get that as a hobby but also embed that in my teaching later on because I teach on quite a few of the field courses and a few bird modules as well in life sciences. Brilliant that's bird ringing rather than bell ringing. Yeah bird ringing yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Quite different. What does that involve? Well, it involves quite early starts actually on a Saturday, particularly in summer, because you have to be up to put the mess net, mist nets up. So they're really kind of fine nets that you put up to catch the birds. So you need to put those up before sunrise, before the birds kind of notice. Um, so over over summer, when I'm kind of over there for 3 a.m. in Warrington um, on the nature reserve there. So just put them up and then you check the nets, ring them, age them, sex them, collect kind of weights, wing measurements, that sort of thing and then release them again yeah 
fantastic and and as you say I guess that has a an impact in terms of your teaching as well so it's all kind of joined up which is great yeah it would definitely be useful for the field courses I go on Uganda quite a bit the first year field course and also quite a few of my honours projects do bird related field um, projects for their honours projects so be really useful for that as well Yay, fantastic. Well, we're talking to you today um, specifically to congratulate you on your Faculty of Science and Engineering Learning and Teaching and Student Experience Award, as well as your Sir Alistair Pilkington Awards. And the, the awards are both based on the work that you've been doing with students in the School of Life Sciences. So I wondered if we could start by you just outlining the developments that you've made for us. Yeah, thank you, Alex. So it kind of covers two two main things that I did with this kind of teaching innovation that I won both the awards for. So part of it was to do with the teaching delivery. So the software that we use um, to teach the students. So I made a change from SPSS, which is kind of a drop down menu clicking interface. And I swapped that into R, which, are, which is a freely openly available software, um, which is more programming based. And the other big change that I did was in terms of the assessments as well. So the module that I teach on is kind of half of module because the other side is communication and study skills where students learn how to write reports, that sort of thing. So the half that I deal with had two assessments that were kind of lots of mini workshop elements and then a kind of MCQ exam. And I changed that to got rid of the workshop elements, made that a group poster and then changed the exam into a short answer question format as well. Wonderful. And I noticed in your um, Alistair Pilkington Award presentation that one of the key issues that you were responding to was this notion of students having maths fear, which I have to say I can relate to. So can you tell me a bit more about that in terms of how you kind of picked that up from the students and then how you specifically responded? Um, so I think it was quite new to me as well. Um, I did maths kind of A-level, really enjoyed statistics. So when I did my undergraduate at Liverpool, really enjoyed the maths and the statistical element of the course. But then when I got the working group together to look at how we were going to completely redevelop the module, I was doing a lot of research to see what other people had done and came across this kind of math sphere. And essentially what it is, is just kind of anxiety around performing math. So people kind of, their mind goes blank. They don't want to engage with it. They get lots of anxiety. The heart starts racing. They get palpitations. Basically, whenever they're asked to do some kind of mathematical calculations or statistical analysis and it has quite a negative impact and means that students then don't want to engage anymore in that kind of scenario because it brings up these feelings of anxiety and distress in quite a few students and we have quite a broad range of students doing life sciences undergraduate degree so some will have maths a levels some won't um, so we've got a real mixture of students there so we try to minimize that as much as possible so we embed in first year skills to build confidence in maths and then in the second year module that I've redesigned we've been looking at getting students to work through workshops but then kind of having small just little questions that students can do in their own time to really test their understanding that are formative so they're not being assessed they don't have to worry about a grade but just to try and build up a bit of this confidence so when they get to the exam and they see a problem they can think oh, okay I've, I've tackled something similar how would I do that in the exam setting. Interesting, yeah, because <clears throat> I can see them embedding that at kind of primary school level. I've got children who've mm -hmm. left primary now, but this whole idea of kind of working with maths problems and enjoying them and kind of journaling their answers. And it's very different to the mm -hmm. way I learned maths, but I can see kind of putting students in those scenarios where they just have little little questions to work on um, to build their confidence is really, really important. So have you seen a positive response to that? 
Yes, I think students did engage with it. And if, if I was a bit late posting up the answers, student would kind of nudge me and go, Becky, when are you going to put the answers up? So that was good. So it's good to see that they were using them rather than kind of waiting till the end when they were revising and kind of all in one go using them then. So that was really good, really good to see. Brilliant. I can definitely relate to maths fear. I, I, <laughs> I hated maths uh, at school and I did relatively poorly in it as well from GCSE. But then I went into finance and spent eight years uh, oh, wow. in finance so you know I was forced to get over it but that statistical mm -hmm. thing that you mentioned still stays with me so when I'm confronted by a large data set whether that be on excel or something I'd look at that and think how am I going to interpret this so I, I, mm -hmm. I definitely get I definitely get where you're coming from with that so it's interesting I'd like to see the research on that yeah yeah no it's quite well noted and across lots of year groups like you were saying Alex even across like primary school children and it's a really key thing and people are going to need maths kind of their whole life through and things like that so it's kind of something to tackle especially when they're really young as well to try and get students to overcome that and creating real world problems that students can and younger children can relate to as well so it's not kind of abstract maths it's kind of things that they think about so maybe doing the shopping or things like that just something that they can relate to and have yeah. fun with without having to realize they're actually doing maths something yeah. fun. I had a similar conversation with my son recently about area how to calculate area because I was saying you're going to need he was arguing that he wouldn't need it and I was saying no you will because when you go into a carpet shop when you're older you'll need to figure out how much carpet you need for your house <laughs> yeah. that's the only thing I could think yeah. convincing that he needs to he needs to know this stuff yeah, I think I saw a tweet, maybe it was last week of um, someone saying, oh, I learned Pythagoras when I was um, at school. I didn't think I'd ever use it. Like, why would I ever need to use Pythagoras for anything? But they actually use wildlife cameras out in the field to track species movements and things. And they realized they were missing loads of animals on the camera because they hadn't calculated kind of the angle they needed to at to be the correct height to then capture the animals. So they were saying that they were then using Pythagoras to then calculate the angles and the height of the animals to work out what the best position on the tree would be. So I thought that was wonderful to see. Yeah, that's brilliant. That person needs to go back to their math teacher and say, you were right. Yeah. <laughs> I did yeah. need all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Another thing that I picked up um, from your presentation for your Alistair, your successful Alistair Pilkington Award um, was how that you'd responded to issues of um, plagiarism within the um, programme. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, as I said before, at the beginning, I did my undergraduate degree in zoology at Liverpool Uni. And when I came back a couple of years ago now, just back into my third year of teaching at Liverpool since I've returned, I actually realised when I took over teaching the statistics side of this module that actually relatively little had actually changed since I did it almost 10 years ago. So initially it started off as a, oh, this module could do with a bit of a refresh. And then it kind of snowballed into, well, if we're doing that, let's just overhaul this module completely and work on the assessments. But what I found was the first year I came back, it was still in SPSS because I I'd only just started in the September. So it was too late to make any changes into R. So I told the students I'm going to change the workshop data sets because they had kind of five small pieces of work following a workshop that they would complete and hand in. It would get marked and they'd get that for feedback for the following session. I told them I was going to change these data sets and I was still having students submit workshop data sets that and the answers would match those that would have been correct for the previous year. So had I not changed the data set so I could really see they were 
kind of colluding and plagiarizing and copying third year work, which for me, I was, it was quite sad and also meant for the students, they weren't engaging, they weren't learning this material and this biologists, whether they stay in the field of academia or move out, they're going to need maths or statistics maybe in some way or form. So the key thing for me was to try and reduce that and also think of how can I assess the students, over 450 of them in our second year, in a meaningful way that allows them to actually engage and basically not kind of copy each other. Um, so I came up with the idea to change the workshops into a group poster conference assessment, which was good because then rather than marking 450, I could divide that by five. So it was fewer assessments to mark, but also the groups were learning kind of together as well because we encourage group work and working together collegially. Um, that's really important. So I wanted them to work together, learn off each other and those that perhaps a bit better, help those students that are perhaps struggling. And I encourage that, um, but I just didn't want them kind of plagiarizing and colluding on these pieces of work. So kind of linking back to what Matt was saying earlier on with kind of large data sets and how you would tackle that. The thing that I did with our undergraduates was I went onto Kaggle, which is a free software that people can look at, which has large, large data sets. Quite a few of them are kind of AI based, but you can have a look through and there's real world data sets from scientists who've put them up there with some context, with all the data files, with an explanation of what all the columns are um, that you can freely use that are kind of three, 5,000 rows long. So I was trying to get the students to engage with that in this kind of growing world of big data, with all the health data coming out, genomics data that we're seeing a, a huge increase in. I wanted them to be able to tackle large data, interpret it and pull out things that they were interested in as well. That's really interesting. So we'll drop a link in the show notes to the uh, that software. Um, you also mentioned R. So can you just tell me a little bit about that software and, and why you chose it specifically? So I chose R mostly because it's freely available. So students used to work in SPSS, but they would need a license code for that. So every year they'd have to go back to CSD, request a new license code. That would take up the entire first workshop as people were trying to you know, log back on, renew the license code. But essentially it meant all the skills they'd learnt in statistics using SPSS, once they'd left uni, they'd have to pay quite extortionate amounts for their own personal licence, which I don't think is very fair and um, is not very equal across students and could disadvantage quite a few students. So one of my key things was make sure it's freely available, students can access this software after their undergraduate, whether they go on to do a postgraduate in academia or whether they go into another field, they still have that software. And also R, in my field, behavioral ecology tends to be the most widely used software as well. And because things can change frequently, new packages are used kind of every year and the course is going to evolve to keep up with what are the hot trends, the hot packages in R that people need to know. So it's good because it's, it's free, students can use it afterwards, but also it's kind of keeping up with the times and currently evolving as well. So students are using the, the real skills right now that researchers are using. Yeah, brilliant. So, yeah, you've basically brought the module right bang up to date. Yeah. How did you change the associated assessments as, as well? And, and why did you change them? Or did, was that as a result of changing the software? Yeah, so I changed the workshops into the poster conference format um, that I was just talking about briefly before. And then students presented that in a conference session in the labs, because I thought it's important that students understand the stats and can analyse these big data sets. But it's also important that they can tell you what they've done. So rather than having it written down, I thought it was important that orally they could tell you 
exactly what they've done and explain it to you. And it was kind of an authentic assessment time with Curriculum 2021 of if you go into academia, if you go into a graduate job market, you're going to be asked to present something in a conference, in a meeting room, something like that. So trying to develop those skills, confidence building as well. So the other assessment then, we changed from an MCQ to an SAQ as well. So the MCQ, I think, fostered more of a surface level understanding of the stats, whereas I wanted to really ingrain in them kind of a deeper level understanding of it. And I kind of set expectations for the students at the start to say, although you're doing a group poster and you'll work together on that and work collaboratively and learn from each other, um, for the exam, you will be on your own. Um, You're going to be getting different data sets. You need to make sure you engage from the start so that you're able to do this because in the first year pre-pandemic they were all sat across I think it was five computer rooms um, 450 students across campus at the same time um, they didn't have access to google and translation websites so um, they had to kind of learn it or they weren't going to do very well in the exam but I think the student feedback from that was really good they thought it was a fair way to assess them and they thought it really tested their understanding as well so that was that was really good feedback to hear as well relating to the change that I made to that assessment. I had a question about um, the move to the group poster presentation. Often students don't like working in groups. Do they? Yeah. Did you have any kind of negative feedback in terms of that move? Yeah, so yeah, exactly what you've said, Alex. So they really enjoyed the SAQ exam and they thought it was a good test. But the group poster, yeah, you get the issues of kind of group work coming up. So some groups, because they were in their tutorial groups, some groups obviously worked really well together. Some didn't work so well together. Um, so there was more mixed feedback for the poster that relating to group work and who was in their group. Um, but they enjoyed presenting it at the conference and being able to go around and talk to other students about their posters as well. So kind of the presentation aspect of it, they really enjoyed. But yeah, group, group work is an issue as always. Yeah, but I think what you're saying is brilliant in that you're really working to enhance the student experience on the programme, but you've also got that view to the future as well in terms of the kind of future employability where, you know, students will need to present. So can you tell us a bit more about your rationale for that in terms of looking forward for the students? Yeah, um, so I thought it's really important, kind of as we already discussed, that students have these skills now and we embed them in into the degree programs now and into the curriculum because we really are ahead of the curve like there's only a handful of unis that have kind of transitioned into our and it's starting to pick up pace and I've been contacted by a few other universities since who've kind of asked for feedback what did and what didn't go well so I think we really are ahead of the curve in the School of Life Sciences at, at the transitioning into our and teaching this as well but as you said before it's really important for our, our students kind of looking forward the whole aim of this is to get our students into jobs at the end of it so graduate market is going to get even more competitive what with COVID and everything happening with that so the skills that we're teaching them in our in programming in this new programming language are really going to make them stand out um, above other students and also the graduate companies are asking for these skills now they recognize coding data analysis skills programming is one of the top three hard skills that they feel students just don't have coming out of university so by embedding them now in in the School of Life Sciences, hopefully we're, we're putting our students in much better stead to be extremely competitive when they go out into the job market. Wonderful. And I guess they can relate to that experience of preparing, you know, a, a poster in a group and then presenting mm-hmm. that in a kind of mock um, conference setting at, at interview as well. They can talk about that experience with future employers, maybe. 
yeah, definitely a skill that they can say they've done, they've presented a poster, they've worked with big data sets, they've worked in a group. So it's really ticking quite a few kind of interview points that they can use when they go for interviews as well. It matches some of the aims of the work that Rob Trahan has been doing with HiPi. Yeah. Does have you have you had conversations with Rob about some of the links that, that are there between, you know, getting people coding who, you know, they haven't come to university to, to code, but they, they're enabled to leave with those skills? Yeah, so Rob was on the working group because he teaches the the first year quantitative skills module. So when I first started, I created a working group of everyone who teach maths or statistics. And just because I didn't see the point in overhauling this whole module if these skills weren't embedded elsewhere across the curriculum and people could really build on them. So we had a, a chat with Rob about embedding some of the R work at the end of the first year. So students got a little flavor of that before moving into second year. Um, we decided on R over Python just because that's kind of the experience I have with it. I think that's maybe a slightly easier transition than moving into Python, but obviously there's a lot of transferable skills moving from R into Python, quite similar programming languages. So that's kind of a, an optional extra that students can do. And I was quite surprised this year, quite a few students actually had Python background. So we're really able to do quite advanced data visualization techniques in R based on their previous backgrounds in Python already. Brilliant. We should just say that, and we've got a really interesting podcast with Rob um, talking about his work with students and, and Python. So listeners should, should check that out if they're interested. So you, you touched on some of the um, conversations that you're having with other universities and the fact that you think that we're ahead of the curve, which is great to hear. I always enjoy hearing that Liverpool are first and something. So are, the, are those universities coming to you for some support to make changes to their curriculum as well? Yes. Yeah, so um, pre-pandemic, I had a number of meetings with someone from John Moore's University in their life sciences and environmental sciences. So kind of talking through the initial changes I'd done, um, how it went, because I'd only had kind of one run through of the changes that year. So learned quite a lot, but still had things to change for the second year as well. That's just been as well. So we've been working with him just to offer support, some guidance on what I think may or may not work in, in terms of assessments. And then kind of maybe a few months ago during the pandemic, been contacted by someone from Leeds as well, university looking at what do we do? How do we teach it? What are the methods and things like that as well? So working with him as well to try and embed some of the skills that I've taught here over into Leeds as well. Keeping it Northern, good, great to hear. Yeah, <laughs> Northern powerhouse. <laughs> Becky, that's all been really, really interesting. And um, it's great to hear about the practice that you're engaged with. I'd, I'd really like to hear about what's next for you. Thanks, Alex. So I've done a couple of years now of changing this module. So I'm still kind of going through the iterative process of changing it and kind of doing all the fine tweaking in response to student feedback. I've also recently received a grant from SEDS as well to look at the impact of these changes on our diverse student body as well. So kind of alluded to it earlier, but we have students with maths backgrounds, those without maths backgrounds. In life sciences, we have a good mix of male and female students. And we also have kind of home versus international students with a, a large number of XJTLU students coming in in second year that make up about 10% of the cohort as well. So some of the changes I made along with the assessment, I provided online video tutorials and things like that. We ran 
online kind of live coding sessions as well, which were pretty scary initially, but the students seem to, to really enjoy them. So the grant that I've received is basically to look at the impact of these changes on the student marks and these diverse student groups as well to see kind of how it is affecting the different groups and also what further support could we put in place for the different groups as well. So to those perhaps without a maths background need a bit more kind of introductory kind of our basics or are they okay with that? And how kind of XJTLU students who seem to perform quite well in this, what could I learn from them that they enjoy that I could embed to help our home students as well? So I did an interview, sent out a questionnaire with some students as well. So I'm writing that up currently for a paper as well. Wonderful. And then are you going to look at that over um, a kind of longitudinal study as well and see how that changes over time? Or is it just, um, are you just addressing what's happening at the moment? I, well, that was just looking at the first year that I changed it. But I think kind of a few years down the line, once I've done a few more tweaks, and I'm, I'm kind of happy with how it's running. I think I would like to have another look and see, is there anything further I could do? How is it performing? How can I try and keep it up to date, keep it topical with what's going on as well? Wonderful. Brilliant. Well, thanks for your time today, Becky. It's been great to have the conversation with you. Um, this podcast is the Developing Practice podcast. So what we'd like to do is have our guests just give us three or four take-home tips that the listeners can reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So if you can give us any thoughts or tips in relation to your practice, what would they be? Um, so I probably have quite quite a few. I'll try and keep them um, kind of cut down. But I say the first one is definitely create a working group. I know some people you say working group and people shy away and think, oh God, no, not another working group. But actually I found my working group really useful. Um, so I had all the people who taught maths or to statistics in some form on that. And we were really able to, across the whole curriculum, across kind of undergraduate and postgraduate, have a look at the state, state of maths and statistics teaching and allowed us to change the second year module which was the main focus, but also add a bit of R and statistics and programming into first year and also change some of the other modules in second year into R as well. So it was really good to have people on board who taught across these different modules to really see what was doing and where we could embed these skills further. So that would be a good tip, get, get people involved who, who do this teaching so you can create a bigger picture rather than focus in kind of on one module. Um, and also, as we kind of was, were talking about before, don't kind of rest on your laurels. This module hadn't really changed for quite a number of years. Students were really happy because um, marks kind of kept going up and up. But kind of you do need to make make changes and kind of reiterate courses as well to keep keep things fresh and keep keep things current for the students and think about what skills do they need in the future to make sure they can get employed as well. Um, the final thing I would say is think of your assessment. So what effectively can you deliver based on your class size? So this was a large cohort, so 450 students. So if I kept it as the workshops and had five of those for 450 students every other week, there's no way we could have marked that. So think about your class size, think about what's feasible um, and then adjust your assessments based on that. Really great tips. Thanks, Becky. Thanks for your time today. It's been really interesting. Cool. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it was great to chat with Becky. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as well. Becky talked a lot about how she had responded to the pedagogic literature as well as student feedback about the concept of math sphere. 
And that's something that really struck me as we had that conversation as some, somebody who also has that maths fear when faced with large data sets. She designed small, manageable, low stakes interventions, which made a big difference in terms of student confidence. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of what she did seemed to um, be designed to support students in terms of their confidence. I like what she talked about devising the poster assessment where she put students together in teams so that they could support each other in terms of overcoming that anxiety concerning large data sets. She talked about some of the challenges that we often face when we ask students to work in groups or teams, but she felt that the skills that they developed, for example, their presenting skills, their future employability skills, were well worth making this, this development. Well, hopefully you really enjoyed that conversation. It would be great if you wanted to take your thinking and your reflections further. You'll find some resources on the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. Also, please do let us know what you thought about the episode. You can tweet us at liveuniacademy and you can also find us at elearnermat or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. Yeah, so do contact us. Um, it'd be really nice to hear some, some of your thoughts on these episodes. As usual, we are really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you are an Apple user, please do take the time to review our show as it really will help others find us. Bye for now. Thank you.